I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Julie Jungalwala. Julie is the founder of the Institute of the Future of Learning, seeking to transform the one-size-fits-all model of education. She's also an author, speaker, consultant, and advises at the Harvard Innovation Lab and teaches at the Harvard Extension School. Julie, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start our conversation off talking about innovation. You are at the Harvard Innovation Lab. What's an inspiring innovation that you've seen either at the Harvard Innovation Lab or somewhere else? Thank you for having me, Matthew. It's great to be here. An inspiring innovation. Where am I? <laughs> it's not exactly an innovation as such, but where my head went to when you asked that question was the potential innovation that we're sitting amidst right now Mm. with the pending aftermath of COVID. Yeah. I feel like there is so much bubbling right now and just how schools have pivoted Mm -hmm. in a matter of weeks, uh, just as an example, uh, both K through 12 and higher ed to put their entire educational enterprise online. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of redoing the old stuff online, of course, but I think there's so much that's bubbling under the surface right now. Mm. That's where my head went to when you asked that question. Yeah, let's pop one of those bubbles and see what comes out. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, let's take a closer look. Let's zoom in a bit. You know, those bubbles are are coming to the surface. Let's, Let's pop one, let's uncover one, and let's take a look. What's something that you've seen uh, specifically that's been an innovation that uh, that you think is interesting or in the right direction? I saw a video just this morning uh, of a Google presentation hmm. where they were presenting the latest in their uh, voice-powered technology. And I'm just pulling it up here on my phone because it was a TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Google Duplex. Okay. Uh, And the voice recognition was extraordinary. Hmm. And what struck me was the speaker talked about deep learning. And I just had this flash of the technology, the speed of it stripping past the education system, 
where we've been talking about deeper learning. You know, Jalmetta's great work at the Harvard Graduate School of Education really helped to coin that term. Mm-hmm. And his latest book, In Search of Deeper Learning, uh, I think we are in a race against time here uh, where the machines potentially might be outstripping what's possible through the education system. So that's one of the biggest opportunities and challenges that I see right now. What do you mean by that, that the technology might be stripping away the possibilities in education? Uh, Not stripping away, I guess a more accurate phrase would be uh, bypassing Mm. or, you know, just speeding ahead of us at an extraordinary clip. And I think many teachers, students, families felt this uh, with so much of the K through 12 experience being uh, translated online. there was, there was some incredible work uh, and, and it is incredible work that's happening. And there was a lot of transferring worksheets online. Yeah. And when you're looking at some of the technology that's available compared to some of uh, what was available to kids, I mean, there's no, there's no competition there. I mean, I watch my three-year-old uh, on the iPad and watching some of the educational videos there. They're incredibly immersive uh, mm-hmm. and... I watch how he, you know, goes two minutes here and one minute there. And I think about him sitting in a class for 45 minutes. What will his education experience look like in high school? Hmm. So I, I, I've really gotten the sense in the past number of months, you know, I've been in education for 15 years at this point, And it really does feel like things are starting to speed up in a good way. And my hope is that by 2030, there is a lot of change, a lot of change. Good change. Julie, you also have a book in the works. Uh, tell us a bit about it. So this is a, a book that my uh, colleague, Julie Stern, so it's Julie to the power of two, <laughs> if you will. Uh, Julie Stern is a, a great author uh, and speaker. Julie Stern, she, uh, one, one of her, her most latest book is called Learning That Transfers. And we met at a conference a couple of years ago and broke out into heated agreement uh, about what we'd the change we'd like to see in the world. And the book uh, that we're writing, we're still working on the title, but it's some version of Three Truths and Five Decisions. Hmm. And the genesis uh, really came out of the first book that I wrote called The Human Side of Changing Education. And in that book, I described, like many other people have, how the world is changing and how we need schools to change and what needs to be in place in order to sustain meaningful desired change. And I remember having a dark night of the soul writing that book because I came to this uh, juncture where I I wrote the sentence, uh, it's unlikely that if we've got uh, 13,000 school districts in the country, that 13,000 superintendents Mm. and 130 principals are going to decide in the next couple of years to do this kind of work. Therefore, uh, if there is a change that you would like to see in the system, and whether you're inside it or outside of it, uh, that's your call to adventure. You're officially on the hero's journey. And yeah. uh, then I sketched out the narrative arc of the hero's, hero's journey and some tools and resources to help folks as they navigate that path. So fast forward um, four years, and we are coming out of this stage of COVID. And I feel myself getting less invitational and more direct. <laughs> and saying, if you're a school leader and 
if, if we take these three three truths that uh, Julie and I are pulling together into the book, the three truths being we are living in a changing world. There is much uh, that we know uh, with regards to how kids learn, the science of human development and well-being. And thirdly, uh, what has been brought to the surface uh, with regards to social justice, diversity, equity and inclusion. If you're a school leader and you're ignoring those three truths, then I think your district is in trouble. Mm. And we are going to unpack each of those truths in the book and then talk about the five decisions that go along with them. So the three truths are, uh, I guess they could serve as three lenses, changing world, science of human development, learning, and the time for equity and social justice. And the five decisions are essentially uh, thinking of curriculum, what's worth learning, given the changing world, you know, yeah. given, uh, given what we know, um, what's worth learning. How do we essentially prepare our children for what is an unknowable future. Uh, second decision, pedagogy. You know, how do we best learn? Mm. We know a lot. <laughs> uh, and the third question is on assessment. How do we know it has been learned? Fourth question is around change and how change happens. And oh, by the way, you can't change a hierarchical model with a hierarchical model of change management. That just doesn't work. And then finally, roles. Uh, so what's mm. everybody's role in making change happen? And one of the biggest shifts that I'm seeing, it's not just teachers and administrators and stu and students, it's also parents and the broader community. So those are the, that's the scaffold, if you will, of that second book. Yeah, as you've gotten into that, you've gotten into your research, you're writing it, you're, you're getting it out there. Has there been anything that surprised you that's come to the surface and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that? What's surprising me so far is the difference that I feel with myself internally writing this second one compared to the first one. I'm feeling a much greater sense of urgency with this one. Why is that? I feel like we're at the start of a highly disruptive decade. When I wrote the first book, it seemed like it would be this optional thing for school leaders to engage in the you know future of education conversation and, and to lead their schools and communities in that direction. It feels really urgent to me right now. It feels not optional. Hmm. It feels like we're going to leave a generation of kids behind if we don't get on top of this and get on top of it pretty quickly. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces in that, as you were explaining it, that are sort of jumping out to me that are very interesting. One of them is the idea of change, right? Mm -hmm. Within a school, I'm in a public school that's been around for a while. You know, it's very bureaucratic and it's been in the, the community for hundreds of years. Many schools like that throughout the country find it very difficult to change, right? Mm -hmm. And and as a teacher and even as administrators within those systems, it breeds a lot of frustration because mm -hmm. there's this desire to make something better. But in many, in many cases, the system is set up to not allow that change to occur. Can you help us? Can you bring us into a little bit of your thought process with bringing about change within a school system? So I don't think it's just the leader's job. I think it's top down, bottom up, inside mm. out, outside in. We need all yeah. of those pieces playing. At the same time, I would say the leader really needs to embrace letting go of control. Mm. And that's scary. Yeah. So I work you know, with, with school leaders and school boards. The traditional model is built on compliance, consumption, and control. And if you really want to change that into a much more creative, autonomous learning organization, you need to fundamentally 
reorient yourself towards the work and the role of everybody in making the change happen. Hmm. I have seen leaders who really embrace this and, and it sounds good on paper and it sounds good during the strategic planning process, <laughs> but too often all it can take is an influential parent to call a board member True. to really cut uh, something innovative off at its knees. You know, schools aren't like corporations. They're, 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 they're run in a very different way. Yeah. So when Julie and I will talk about in the final chapter about everybody's role in making this change happen, this is a community-wide change. The more work and the more attention that's paid in the front end of getting really, really clear on the problem we are solving, then the greater the appetite will be for meaningful, sustainable change. The challenge is the temptation is always to skip steps in the change process. You do it quickly, you know, let's not have this community meeting, let's not mm. go through X, Y, or Z, let's just jump to this piece. And that only ever provides the illusion of progress. Bring us into a situation where change did happen, where people got on board and it brought about, you know, effective, meaningful, innovative chain you know describe that for us and bring us through that process uh, so that we can better understand how this can happen so i was working with a school and the head of the school was frustrated in his conversations with parents because so often those conversations devolved to performance on standardized tests he recognized that he couldn't push back on the standardized test conversation without having a compelling alternative some compelling alternative data uh, mm. to measure the learning. So he started uh, from first principles. He conducted a community-wide survey on essentially what's worth learning. When your child graduates this school, what are the skills, knowledge, and habits of mind that you wish them uh, to be in possession of, the capacities you want them to have? Yeah. And he had a fantastic response rate, and he fed that information back to the community. And interestingly, mm. nowhere on that on that survey was, you know, performance on a, on a high stakes test. Yeah. So he then brought his board together and said, if we're really serious about this, I need your support because it's going to mean change Yeah. and things are going to look differently. And I need to know that whenever things get sticky, which they will, that you have my back. And, and the, they had a, a number of conversations and agreed that yes this is the way forward and hmm. we're basically going to walk this path with you then the the head of school brought the teachers immediately into the process hmm. to start to work on the survey data distill what, what what they were seeing there and then to start to do the work of how might we begin to show progress around each of these characteristics so the teachers did the hard work of this. Yeah. And oftentimes in these kinds of conversations, and I've, and I've been part of them myself, where I feel the frustration, there's a sense of, well, could we not just bring in a consultant to tell us? Mm -hmm. The minute you bring in a consultant, you can come up with 10 reasons why their model won't work in your yep. school. So it's all about engaging the, you know, the people mm. who, who know uh, the teachers uh, and providing them with the, the, the resources and the facilitative help to do this work, they built this incredible portfolio cool. and uh, flipped the, the way in which those conversations had happened in the past. 
in such a way that it was the student who led the conversation. The student led the parent through the digital portfolio and the presence of the teacher and they all had a conversation about it. Mm. And that work, I believe, took four to five years. Wow. Again, you might get a consultant in who could say they could, you know, pull together something for you and you can implement it within a year. And you and I both know that goes to bookshelf heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Whether that be in your Dropbox, in the cloud, somewhere in your hard drive or a physical bookshelf. Looks pretty, uh, probably has a nice deck that goes along with it. But has the student or teacher experienced anything different? Mm. Eight times out of 10, probably not. Yeah, thanks for sharing that example. That's I know it's helpful for me. I'm sure it's helpful for our listeners. You know, I'm looking at this triangle. You have this community piece, you know, you have this boardroom or this team piece, and then you have the teacher piece. And, you know, so often, uh, you know, we try just to bypass sometimes all three of those, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but at least two out of three. And and it takes time. And I'm, I'm also thankful, you know, for you bringing up that point that it took four to five years because it does take time. And it, it takes everyone getting on the same page to make that mm-hmm. uh, transformative work happen. You know, and I can hear the passion in your voice as you're talking about this book, you've mentioned it, you know, straightforwardly, you know, saying, you know, the urgency uh, that you have in writing this. You talk about these three lenses. How did you come to pick out those as the three lenses in which to see these things through? Oh, good question. <laughs> I just started writing in there. <laughs> so I think it comes from, probably comes from the fact that I don't have a traditional K through 12 background. So I come to this work having worked for over two decades with adults. I'm a leadership coach. Yeah. I teach adults. I've been fascinated by behavioral change. I work, in addition uh, to K-12, I work in corporations and organizations. I worked in talent management and performance development uh, for almost 10 years. After the first 10 years of that work, this theme started to come up for me, which was that so much of what we were helping these adults do is essentially unlearn what they learned through a standardized system of education. Mm. So that brought me back um, to K through 12 and realizing, you know, I'd graduated high school many, many years prior, but not a whole lot had changed with regards to the high school experience since then. So that changing world piece that that's always with me. Uh, And then whenever I did my graduate work and really started to dig into pedagogy and inquiry-based learning, just what it feels like when you start to interrogate your own thinking and when you work with other students to come up with your own questions. I mean, I remember Eleanor Duckworth's course, The Having of Wonderful Ideas, and Mm. Professor Duckworth studied with Piaget back in the day. And it literally felt like a mental spa. So that just, that's in my body somewhere, uh, that memory of this is what learning, this is the power of learning. This is the potential of learning. It's not another worksheet and drill and kill and, you know, go Mm -hmm. find the right answer at the back of the the textbook. Uh, And then as I work with adults and more and more, this whole question of well-being and a Mm well-lived life and flourishing and thriving and all of the fantastic science that's now starting to back up what intuitively we've known for centuries that second lens around you know the evidence around how we learn in the science of human development and well-being that piece uh, has always been with me 
And then the third uh, truth, uh, truthfully, I had through my white privilege, I was able to ignore that for mm. too long. And with George Floyd and with just, I, I feel like I had my eyes opened. And I participated in a workshop by Joe Truss this past summer called Dismantling White Supremacy in the Classroom. And I just got a deep immersion into how I've been part of the problem. And in my coaching with school leaders, I can, I, I'm learning how their communities are divided. And you've probably mm. read in the press about schools, some parents writing letters and saying, you know, get this anti-racism curriculum out of my kid's school. That's extraordinarily that, that, that a parent would, would, would write that. I mean, I understand that there is a, there's a fear and a sense of threat that goes along with that, that goes along with any unknowing. There's, there's the extent to which I realize the depth of my own ignorance and the way for me to really interrogate that is to write about it. So mm. that's, the, that's the lens that has the most to teach me right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to rush you along with this book, but you need to get need to, need to get going because we have to read this book. <laughs> and then w when you get done, uh, you know, well, you have to come back on, and then you know, I can ask you some more questions about this book. But but your work, I might have work some answers is, at that point, Matthew. What's that? <laughs> I might have some answers at that point. That's a question, which is what I feel is all I have right now. <laughs> no, that's great, and uh, and I I love your focus. I love your passion. I love your insight and and the way that you're approaching it. And I love that. And and it's really needed right now. So thank you um, for delving into that. Thank you for the previous book that you wrote and uh and we are excited for that book to be released so uh you know you gotta gotta keep your eyes on on the prize and get that get that out to us <laughs> uh, at the institute of the future of learning uh, you guys have been doing some great work one of the focuses is transforming the one size fits all model of education um just so we're all on the same page what do you mean by that the one size fits all model of education so I sometimes say it's the one size does not fit all hmm. model of education. Uh, for the most part, and again, I'm, I'm not uh, talking about all schools here. There are some incredible uh, yeah. schools that really focus on personalized learning. Still, we have a, the case where the majority of schools, everything leads towards performance on a standardized test. Hmm. And those standardized tests, for the most part, test for language, logic, and recall. So if you think differently, if you have intelligences outside of those three, you can exit that system feeling like an entire failure. I've had this image in my mind's eye uh, for quite some time. You can imagine a building and kids at one end of it in different pastel colors going through the building and coming out the other end, you know, five, eight, 12 years later, grayed out versions of themselves. Hmm. My hope would be those pastel colored kids would exit that building in technicolor being even mm. more of who they are that they've been asked to think their own questions that there's been much more self-authorship in that whole experience much more self-direction and for the mo most again there are exceptions uh, yeah. but for the most part uh, kids are asked to fit into a certain box mm. pretty early 
Yeah, you're sitting down, you know, maybe for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with a teacher or a school leader, and they're saying, oh, Julie, we, we don't have a one-size-fits-all model. You know, we differentiate our instruction. We have some fun activities for our kids. We love our kids. They're all unique, and we care for them, and they're fun, and all of this stuff. What would you say to them in this conversation to try to figure out if that school actually does have a one-size-fits-all approach or if it's more personalized. And the reason I'm asking you this is because I feel like with the new, you know, differentiated learning and personalized learning, some people are using those keywords and they're sort of using those keywords, but continuing to have a one size fits all approach. So how can we dig down to sort of uncover if there actually is personalized learning going on there, or if it is in fact a one size fits all approach? So I would take a look at the curriculum and a simple litmus test is who's deciding. Hmm. Is it the teacher? Is it the student? And what's meaningful here? If you go to any really uh, great project-based learning school, the kids are encouraged to come up with their own questions. Together, they decide what the inquiry will be for that period of time. Yeah. I remember visiting uh, a new tech network school in Columbus, Indiana. It's, it's a project-based uh, learning curriculum and when they one particular class was getting ready to identify what they would be working on next uh, they learned that a local family's house had a big fire and one of the students suggested that they rewire the house hmm. so what an incredible generative point to enter into maths physics uh, social emotional learning yeah. Uh, teamwork. Another litmus test I would have would be asking the students at the end of the experience, what did they learn about themselves? Hmm. What questions come up for them? What questions were answered and what questions remain? But Julie, if we don't tell them exactly what to do, if we don't guide them with a structured curriculum that goes from point A to point Z, they're not going to learn everything that they need to learn. They're going to have holes in their understanding, in their comprehension, and they're not going to be set up to succeed in life. What's your response? <laughs> <laughs> so given all that there is to know in the world, and this is one woman's highly biased opinion, I think beyond <laughs> if you're in the English speaking world, you know, whatever your native language is, beyond yeah. being able to speak, comprehend and read your native language, and understand math concepts. Think back to everything that you learned in school. How much do you remember and how much do you apply? And I think this is the biggest challenge, which is how do you take a system that was structured, that was designed and built to be standardized, to be flexible, hmm. and to meet the student where they are? Hmm. There is a reckoning that's happening right now. I think we're at the beginning stages of it been thinking a lot recently about student agency mm -hmm. and the importance of that and sort of you know tapping into student passions and interests with, with the work and getting them engaged in it. What have you seen with student agency and the importance within a personalized curriculum? Well, I can talk about just at a very basic level, the absence of it, because I'd like to bring in the high stakes culture as well. Mm. I remember visiting a school in Philadelphia and I was uh, talking with the students there and a girl asked when do I get to play hockey just for fun 
I remember when it used to be fun. Mm. That's just one, you know, heartbreaking example. Another school uh, in Maine where one of the students asked, when do I get to do what I want to do? Mm. And I asked her to say a little bit more about the question. She said, well, I understand what I have to do to get into college. Uh, do I have to then do what I have to do to graduate college to get the job that I want? Or you know, at, at what point do I get to do what I want to do? Yeah. And I remember looking at her and saying, uh, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> good news is you're not alone. Mm. Bad news is I coach 30, 40, 50, and 60-year-olds asking themselves the same question. When do I get to do what I want to do? Mm. And I think we do uh, our kids a great disservice with the college for all mantra. I understand it's very well intentioned, uh, but it does set a lot of kids up for failure. Mm. And I'm thinking of a school here locally in Massachusetts where when they really started through the advisory to tap into students' interests, they discovered uh, one of their students who uh, hadn't been really engaged in class was building cars. And these were oh, wow. works of art. Wow. And when the teacher started to understand the student's passion and how he might learn some of the curriculum through that lens, it was transformative. Hmm. Another student who uh, wanted to become a nurse uh, and to do so in South America. Her Spanish teacher then reoriented the curriculum towards that, uh, that vision that she had. Oh, wow. It's, I mean, whenever teachers get a sense of who the kids are and if the administration will provide the breathing space for us all to have these conversations, Teachers are so creative. Mm -hmm. you're, you're never going to, I mean, nobody would argue that we would like kids to be creative and to be, and adults to be creative. You know, we want to live a creative life, yeah. a created life. But you're never going to get that if the teachers aren't given the bandwidth and the support and the freedom to be creative in their classrooms. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, an you answered it perfectly, and those examples are wonderful. And I'm sure our listeners are getting excited and their minds going to other places, how they can apply that into their classroom and sort of highlight the interests of students. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. Julie, this has been so great talking with you today. As we wind things down, who do you want to give a shout out to? I would like to give a shout out to teachers. What they have gone through since March of 2020 has been extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to say pre-2020, it was extraordinary too. True. I think there's something fundamentally wrong with the profession that you need two months to be able <laughs> to recover from the previous 10 to prepare wow. for the next 10. And I think the way the, the profession is set up is broken. And my hope is that we have a renaissance for teachers, 
for those that want to go forward and to really truly personalize learning for every student it will require that each teacher's professional development is personalized as well and teachers need permission and structure and resources in order to do that yeah. and some uh, achieve extraordinary things in the most extraordinary circumstances so uh, my shout out is for those teachers uh, and i'm trying to find the words that are big enough to say thank you i'm sure they can feel the love uh, time for the final word what would you like to say to close out this podcast we are at the start of a highly disrupted decade. Mm. And in my coaching work, I'm hearing in workshops, personal conversations, professional conversations, I'm hearing more and more people say, you know, I've thought about X, Y, Z, it's time. I'm just done with this. Yeah. And I'm now seriously thinking about that. And I'm thinking about the work that my colleague Jenny and I are doing, uh, Jenny, Janine and Jean, with J is to the time, to the power of four. <laughs> J figures a lot in my life. Uh, this work that we're doing with the reinvention mandate, mm -hmm. we're conducting uh, a number of interviews to really dig into uh, sort of unpacking this black box of human reinvention. And I believe, I guess it's, we're living through highly disruptive times right now. This is a liminal space. And I have a sense that things are possible now that weren't possible pre-March 2020. Hmm. And I don't know exactly what that is for each of your listeners listening, but I would ask each listener to ask themselves, what is my quiet inner voice telling me right now? And to listen to it and to take the tiniest baby step in that direction and see where it takes you. Thank you for that final word, Julie, and thank you for bringing up that reinvention mandate. I was gonna, I had questions for you about that, but we didn't get to it, so I'll just <laughs> link that in the show notes. All our listeners, go read that article, and I believe it's going to be a series of articles through Forbes, and uh, they'll really get you thinking. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep. Edu, I appreciate your time sharing your experiences and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep. Edu, if you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.